You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. So, hey guys, Lorraine and uh, Sylvia, how are you? Hi everybody, hi Monty. How's it going? So I'm assuming everyone here has seen Cruella. There will be spoiled. Okay. Like 300 times. Like 300 times? Not like 101 times? No. Logan really loves it and every time I turn around he's watching it. And then I end up watching it. Yeah, so before we get started, because a couple of weeks ago, Jennifer said that this is a really good movie, that you would love it. And I was holding her on her word on this. And I will be surprised to say, yes, I really did love this movie, Jennifer. Yeah. So thank you for that. Because not only did I ex- like was unexpectedly like pleased with this, but I'm like, it's one of my top five movies like for this year that Cruella has made it. Um, I mean, not that I haven't seen a lot of good movies this year, but to have such an impact on me uh, for what they were able to accomplish in this kind of a weird origin story that is not an origin story that we knew of, like the normal Cruella from 101 Dalmatians, so it's a bit different, which is great. Uh, but we'll talk about that. We have lots of different highlights to go over. Uh, we have video, and we have a couple of discussion questions. Things will happen in the future for, I guess, this kind of series of movies that Disney is planning to roll out. Hey, Patrick. Um, everyone's doing good. Ish. <laughs> so, Patrick, I was telling um, Jennifer, because remember, when you were at the last couple of meetings ago, that she said that we would like this movie online, and I and I confess that I really did. So I'm curious: Did you finally watch this, and what were your initial impressions? Well, I actually did watch it. Okay. And surprise, yeah, I admit it was actually. Uh, there we go, Jennifer. Three for the win. <laughs> it was well done. It, you know what it reminds me of? It's like. Devil Wear Prada with meets, um Yes. It, it had so many of the elements of Devil Wear Prada. So that's the reason why I was like, okay. And then he added that little suspense. Yeah. Uh, uh, I was saying, yeah, I'm pleasantly surprised how well this movie really captured yeah. my imagination. Oh, yeah. It, the, the plot twists and things of that nature. I was like, oh, I see what everybody was saying. Yeah. So. Yeah, we're late to the game, but still, we're here at the game. <laughs> yeah, it was. I was actually impressed. I watched the whole thing through, and I was like, I see what everybody's saying. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, guys, feel free. We have Lorraine, we have Sylvia. So, it's just basically us talking about this, but it's okay because I'm going to record this and hopefully try to get this out to you guys. But, um, you know, let's talk about the different things that as we come across um, the uh, of the movie itself. I'm sorry, I'm trying to change the screen. 
Or maybe Jennifer, if we can work on your hand. There we go. Oh. All right. So right off the bat, one of the things that I love about Disney is how their logo, unlike in the past when it was just kind of very static and it's just very generic, they had kind of adapted the different styles for their movies. In this case, it did this uh, extremely black and white with the red lettering for Cruella, which is stunning to see. So again, I give them major kudos to kind of be on brand with not only with themselves, but they're talking about and change it to match that kind of tone. So again, the the title card itself just set the right tone for me in that sense. Me as well. Yeah, Disney's been now they're trying to following other studios because Paramount does it with theirs, Universal does it with theirs, Warner Brothers especially does that a lot. Yeah. You notice a lot of intros to a lot of their movies. Whatever their movie is, it matches the logo of the studio. So they're just following the same patterns other studios do. But it's kudos to them to be on brand like that. Yes. All right. Let's go on to the next one. Hey, Annie. How are you? So, before I get started, did you watch the movie? <laughs> what do you mean ten times? You got you're on mute. I got to hear this. <laughs> You gotta put it in chats. Oh, come on, Annie. Come on, Annie. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. We can all hear you. I saw yeah. it too many times. Too many times. <laughs> but I have to admit, although I saw it a lot of times, it was okay. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense. It was uh, okay to me. But just, my kids. <laughs> just okay. <laughs> We'll talk about it. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Because you have to re- you have to watch it three hundred times for you to really like it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's go to our next shot here. So Baroness, the House of Baroness, with uh, Emma Thompson, who it is so. It's very much like Meryl Streep from Duffel Wears Prada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mara Winter, Miss Winter, uh-huh. in real life. I'm sorry, I'm cutting. No, no, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, because um, the Devil Wears Prada was yeah. supposed to be a replica of the real um, Miss Winter, Anna Winter, I believe. Yeah. Okay. He's over the whole Met Gala and everything. That whole persona and character. Ah, uh, okay. The real person, a real person. <laughs> yeah, I tr- trust me. I I know they're out there. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Emma Thompson, you know, she's been around for quite some time. Um, like Nanny McPhee, that she's done, you know, some kids' movies, a lot of Shakespeare stuff. But here, it's like she's con- come into her own to the point that she can hold the screen and, like, do nothing. But she has that presence about her. I think that's amazing. Um, but the, the way the storyline played out, like, is that Patrick? The twist here is that you know, of course, I'm assuming everyone saw this, that the Baroness is the mother to Cruella, 
and how it comes to fruition from the beginning to the end and how it plays out is really like I did not see a lot of things coming. You know, I'm usually pretty sharp about that. But I was just like in awe with her performance, her persona, and I can't have enough praise for Emma Thompson doing this uh, Baroness portrayal. Oh, yeah. Anyone else want to chime in with that? Oh, I agree. She was amazing. Um, it seemed like uh, there was at times mafia style. <laughs> um, yeah, I see that. <laughs> kind of, um, you know, getting back from one side to the other. So it, it was really very interesting. She did a really great role. And I think the next slide is going to show the clip, which really says a lot of just her presence. It's not so much even what she says, it's just her presence, um, her demeanor yeah. towards others that really sets the tone of, you know, who's the boss here. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. I totally agree. Anyone else want to share some thoughts about uh, her role or want to go to the next part of the video? Like you guys said, she was perfect. That role was made for her. She had a lot of practice with the characters she'd done in the past. Mm. But um, I do need to ask you to cut me because I tend to go a little ahead. Of, so anytime you feel me going a little ahead, just cut me off. No worries, Manny. <laughs> You're okay. So go ahead. Let's go to uh, the next uh, and play this little quick clip here. Display. I'm so sorry. I can explain that. Right, have a go. Sorry, Baroness. Um, get her. She's the vandal who messed up the whole window display. No. We're dealing with it. Oh, easy, easy, easy. So she works here? Oh, no, no. She was fired. Yeah. We try to give these wretches a chance, but, um, reading. <laughs> Need I say more? <laughs> so she doesn't work here. I'm not convinced I know. You're sweating and I can smell you. Really, thank you. You, grubby girl. Yes. Jeffrey Card. Card. You're hired. This address, 5 a.m. Don't be late. That whole comment is like, I can smell you sweating. <laughs> you know what? Uh, uh, what What I loved about this movie, only what really is feels, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a music buff, so when they're playing all the, the songs from that era, that's what made me get more into it, because you understand that time frame and and I, I love British, you know, the whole the whole British feel of that time period. So, you know, that, especially the snobbery of that dude. I forgot his name, but he was. <laughs> if you ever watch any of those British sitcoms or mm-hmm. any of those shows that you know they have that, that, that level of airs about those vast airs about themselves. Yeah, it's hilarious when they put that in there. So it was 
it was well done. I mean, you kind of you kind of feel for Cruella because there's a line that they say in the movie that she is the Cinderella. I mean, she really was mm. Cinderella. Yeah, it's like twisted. Okay. Um, you did make a good comment about the, the soundtrack. The one thing that I'm, if there was a criticism that I'm going to have, and I'm, there's something with my daughter and I we watch, it's like every five seconds there's another song playing, and I'm, I get it. It sets the tone for what's going on, and within I think the first half hour, I'm like, it's only been a half hour, and I'm like, maybe ten songs have gone through, but it feels so packed. And those yeah. kind of minute, but I'm like, but the director really like leaned in heavy to the soundtrack so much so it's like pretty expensive because uh, there's a score and there's a soundtrack. The soundtrack all all the period pieces that mm-hmm. were the music that we were playing, all the different bands and so forth, like Ike and Tina Turner. Um, but then the score is a separate thing. But I, I again, I love what they were able to do and do something different that we have not felt like that in, in years. Yeah. I, I felt the same way you did, and I wanted to mention that. The music was overkill. I'm a huge music lover, especially um, music from the, 50, the 60s, 70s, mm-hmm. and everything. But not only myself, but other people that I watched it with was like, do we need? And it kind of brings down the climax I felt right. like they could have broken that up with a score, like you mentioned, so mm-hmm. that when they do come in, like, for example, when they had that punk scene, they were playing Iggy Pop's I Want to Be Your Dog. That I love been that a- song so much. Yeah. <laughs> I met Iggy Pop, shameless plug. But, yeah. <laughs> but to give that to give that nice boom and pop that yeah. that song that that song promotes, it yeah. would have been great that if prior to that, they were playing little scores <laughs> here and there and then boom. You know, but because they were doing overkill with the music, it kind of watered down the moment that they wanted to, you know, they really wanted to present. I, f- I felt, in my opinion. Right. Yeah, that's a word. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah, you're right. No. Still uh, it's still good. I mean, I have it on YouTube music, which I'm like, I have to listen to that, the soundtrack and the score, because both are just. Equally compelling, um, but let's get into the tactics here with with Emma Stone. When I heard that she was going to be playing Cruella, that this is something that she's going to be able to pull off because we've seen the Glenn Close version, the live action of that movie, um, and then we also have the animated version of this. So to see a young version of that, not to say that she's not a talented actress, she is by far she very talented. But I didn't think that she was able to pull out such nuanced performance. And again, this is going ahead of time. When she finally goes to the park after the debacle where she gets killed, so to speak, and she's talking to her mother. And she admits, you know, I've always loved you, but now it's time for me to move on and become this persona of Cruella. So, again, I was... very happy to see everything that she was able to deliver across the board, even between Ella and Cruella, you know, vastly two different people. But uh, I can't say enough about her performance. I just want to say something. If it's okay. Um, what I did like was it almost kind of gave you, and I'm throwing in a DC reference, it reminds <laughs> me a little bit of Two-Face. 
Yes. Like, you have two personalities trying to fight with each other because in the very beginning of the story, the I guess what I thought was the mother, but you know, she was telling her to go by Estella and trying to hold to that personality, knowing that she had a dual personality of sorts. And mm-hmm. the fact that she was kind of fighting between that and then here at some point in the movie where she was like, you know, even the the, the two guys, I forgot their name, where they just where they were like Morrison Jasper. We want we want us yeah, yeah. Um actually he was in um yesterday. That guy, he was playing okay. yesterday. It's a great movie. Yes, now I remember. Yes, okay. So, he, you know, they, they're like upset that you know we want Estella back. We don't want this Cruella. So it's like they're dealing with two personalities, and I like the way they played that. And then, you know, the fact that yeah, she may have different sided hair, but she has it goes along with the personality like Two Face, and it played out like Two Face, like mm-hmm. like the inevitability of that. So. That's, what I like about her yeah. that's a good call. I'll go with that. Well, I think she played both roles um, magnificently. Um, but from the beginning of the origins, you know, Bella does have this personality, which is, you know, very strong. Like, women hear me roar at school. She has all these issues as a little girl. Um, you know, she likes to set the tone. And, um, you know, her adopted mother kind of tries to tone and know, you know, let's make friends. Uh, but after the, she sees the Baroness, and she idolizes the Baroness, and she becomes, like, under her as her mentor. Um, you know, the actions of the Baroness basically bring her out, you know, this um, person who wants revenge, uh, basically. It, it didn't begin that way. It just kind of molded into this. Uh, persona that just wanted, uh, you know, retribution basically for her, for the hurt she was feeling. So that's I, my take on it. Anyone else? And you want to say something? Or? I'll save. <laughs> I'll save. Okay. One of the other things, too, that I thought was so really well done was uh, the buildup of her Cruella character. At one point in the hotel that she's cleaning, Kalula Bankhead, that she hears the laugh, that is the very Cruella laugh that we hear later on. We see the, the vehicle that she eventually drives, the the, the Beville, or evil, the, the devil, uh, mobile. But there's just, again, little moments that like that, I'm like, like even seeing the Dalmatians in the very beginning, there's the hatred for the Dalmatian, which of course changes later on altogether. But it, it has that expectation that you, you did this, you set that up, and then you use. Uh, what was the term that we talked about this? You uh, subvert expectations all the way through. Because just when you thought this is where it's going, because we know the animated hist- history of Cruella, it comes completely different in a different way, which I'm glad they did. Yeah. Speaking of those little scenes, when you were mentioning those little scenes that we remember from the movie, um, the, one of the things that stood out to me was how she drive. Remember when she was there was like an iconic scene when she drives, she drives like this, and then Jasper <laughs> stood next to her. <laughs> so I thought, and then when you see the scene where the in the very beginning, when all the 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 owners and their dogs are walking, they look exactly the same, and they had that one scene with the woman that's exactly like. Her dog. That's just like in the beginning of the scene, and I think we that's tricky. Other flights too. We got and those. 
And and as far as Emma playing his part, I had no expectations. I saw that I saw the um the trailer and I said good luck because she has some very strong shoes to fill because this movie is not catering to kids only, but to us and grandparents because the Cruella yeah. came out in the sixties, mm-hmm. you know. So you have adults watching it again as kids, very critical. What are they going to do? How are they going to cater to this new group? And as we talked about in Geek Out prior in the Black Widow, how yeah. we were mentioning how Scarlett Johansson did nothing for us. She did. Yes, she played an iconic character. But through your acting, you can still bring something out of it. And I felt like this is what Emma did successfully with this character. that Scarlett Johansson, in my opinion, did not do with Black Widow. Yes, it's a character that people know, but she was able to reinvent it, bring her own style and still suck people in and make people like this Corella, especially when the old Corella is so beloved, you know. So that's I did like I did enjoy her performance with this character. Oh, before we go to the next slide, I want to say hi, Linda. Thank you for joining. Feel free to chime in with your thoughts. Anything you want to say, comment. There's, this is just a simple conversation. Um, if you don't want to say anything, you can put it in chat and we'll read it in chat. So don't worry. Um, any other thoughts about Emma Stone before we move on to the next? Another little moment, which kind of stole my heart. Uh, Wink and Buddy. More so Wink than Buddy. I love Buddy, but Wink is by far the best thing uh, that, that won me over. And I really want a stuffed animal with Wink. I just can't get enough of that performance that they were able to do with a dog, especially when they dress Wink as a rodent for the party that they have to go and break into. So, yeah, I, I, again, I, I love, you know, the performances of these two characters. And I felt bad for Buddy because even Buddy felt that Cruella, when she changed Cruella from Ella, that she was different and didn't have that same kind of relationship. And he felt kind of like, you know, taking the back seat to her, you know. So I felt bad for him. So, oh, any thoughts about... Fact, um, Buddy was actually straight on. Hmm. And, um, you know, he was trained and he did a wonderful role in this movie. And, you know, it, it was great that they were able to give this dog an opportunity, you know. Um, it's not just 101 Dalmatians, it's other dogs, too. <laughs> And yeah, the roles they played were were really funny, <laughs> especially the rodent. Yeah, uh, Lorraine writes that Wink is uh, the the breakout star for the movie. Okay, yeah. I, again, I was not expecting to to love that dog as much as I did. Any other feelings and thoughts about Wink or Buddy? I'm glad they didn't go the route of talking animals. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I'll give you that. <laughs> Oh yeah, so agree. Yeah, I just you know one thing I can say is that I love the fact that even though I mean it's been a while since I've seen the the cartoon of 101 Dalmatians or the movies since it's been years, but one of the things if I remember correctly and correct me if I'm wrong, didn't Cruella didn't like animals or like especially I know she didn't like the Dalmatian, but was she um did she not like other animals or especially dogs 
I don't remember. It was. It was. It was. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Monty. No, no, no. Go ahead. Because I'm. I'm, It was that. Okay, I like. Okay, I'm gonna kind of tie it into tie it into what we were talking about earlier with um the character of of that they have um the the villain. It's the fashion world. Um, it was all about. Remember how people wore fur fur coats? It was all about the fur. It didn't care. She didn't care if it was rat, if it was weasel. What was in fashion was Dalmatians. And that's what mm. she wanted. I don't think that she hated animals. She okay. wanted it. She wanted their skins. And that's what I love how they how they delve more into the fashion world. Like, because I'm a big Tom Ford fan, not so much his brand, but the 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 kind of world that they built and you know, the difficulty and 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 navigating through that world. So I like that that they, they brought that element. They explore more of that element when you see the catwalk and everything, um, you know, okay. like the Carl Lagerfeld world and stuff like that and anything. But yes, it was all about, they're trying to make fashion. She was a personification of evil, the fashion, how they didn't care about, they just okay. cared about, you know, that stuff. I'm glad you brought that up because we'll talk about that later. But she didn't really care for animals, I think, period. It wasn't even just fashion. I think when you watch the, the animated version, I think when the dogs, they kind of pop up in general, she was just like, ugh, period. And I think they played it up when they had Glenn Close, I think, when she did her adaptation. I don't remember her really being around animals too much, but I haven't watched that movie in years. Yeah. Well, that, that's part of the reason why I mentioned that, because I've noticed they made her more caring for animals. So it's like, I don't know if, I guess you might say they may have retconned her a little bit to make her more animal friendly, I guess. Yeah, she, that's why I was asking that because I was because I noticed one thing about Disney, and especially now that they're doing all these villain, these redeemable villain type stories, and it seemed like they're when they retcon them, things that you knew that were absolutes, now it's gray areas, or now it's well, you got to see this side of them to see that oh, this yeah. is the reason why, and this is just like how they did with Maleficent, it was like you saw her from a different. Mm-hmm angle like of course she's the reason why it's because her her people were hunted down and killed and so now there's like another Thanos situation yeah so that's what I, was, I I just noticed that they gave her more they gave her more um a human approach to how she treats animals yeah I think world. yeah what they tend, are doing the villains right now is they're saying their actions are basically a reaction to trauma because you notice how they really play up that she's traumatized in a sense from the Dalmatians. Like they're what she's focused on, especially when she remembers the history of what happened, which is the same for Maleficent. It's a trauma response to what happened to her. So it's like they're basically kind of showing that, I guess, depending on some route you take or maybe well, I can't speak for them, but basically just trauma response. Right. It's a new formula now that that Disney is exploring. So. And it yeah. seems to work. Once Maleficent did well, then they're just now, and there's a cool is not the last. Yeah. So there's going to be more. They probably do Captain Hook. Well, they did with Hook already, but you yeah. know, just call the Disney villain and we'll see a movie out soon for it. We'll have that also at the end of the conversation. I'm going to have some more to talk about for the future. The other thing that I liked about Maleficent, um, there was a guy named Paul Harvey on radio. He will tell you a certain thing about a certain fact that we all know, but then he will tell you the rest of the story, which that was his angle. So it's like with Melissa Finn, we don't know anything other than she's this bad person. But when you see that other side, then you understand, oh, 
he wasn't the bad person in the story. It was the king in this that in that sense. But the other thing someone brought out too is that the way this is played out, it's like Corella kind of checks off a lot of boxes, so that technically she is kind of like a, a Disney princess in a weird way because every one of them has the the loss of a mother trauma in their life <laughs> uh and there's some elements of not revenge but you know they have to get through many traumas to get to a happy ending so to speak so uh, it's a weird kind of box to put crawl in as a disney princess but it's, you know it's surprisingly if you've ever been watching i don't know if anybody watches the marvel what if yeah. this is like what if cinderella was born in the 60s yeah. And what happens if she now fights back in revenge of how she was treated? It's like a what if version of that. That's how they kind of approached it. I mean, that's how I got it. Maybe I'm wrong. No, it's that's fair enough. Good enough. All right, so let's get into the her cohorts. We have Jasper, which not to play in the in the love aspect, but do you think if when they do the second one, they're going to lean into her? And him together, Jasper and Ella. It made him well, too insightful. It really? made him too insightful. Okay. Um, that's my. He's they were really good, but that's my only thing. I'm like, ah, I wish they would have pulled back a little bit, a little bit. But yeah, he was excellent. But like in the animated movie, he as he said to Jasper, I mean to, to Horace, he is the brains of the operation. So. Horace really just goes along with whatever Jasper says, so I would think... I mean, I would, I would give you that it is a little too... Especially at a young age, to have such whereabouts about her losing a mom, and you know how that all feels. So like, we're that emotionally mature at that age, but then again, if you're living on the streets, maybe you are. Who knows? Yeah, but do they always have to add a love interest into something? Because in a cartoon, you'll never think Jasper and eh, you're like, eh. you know, I wish they would explore more of the fashion side of her. Like, for yeah. example, when she meets the guy in the boutique, you know, that kind of I wish they would have went a little bit more that route. Yeah. I felt like, you know, I understood the Jasper part and how their version of it, their interpretation of them. But mm-hmm. I thought it started to get a little bit safe and lazy. Mm. I have a question because yeah. I haven't finished the movie. So mm-hmm. I want you to spoil it for me. Does she <laughs> with him? Because I just feel he's empathetic of her more so than he likes her in that sense. So does he actually end up with her? No, not at all. I think it's more of an admiration that like he has chemistry. for her. Yeah. It's like a working uh, relationship. Yeah. But I can see there's something there because he does like Ella more. But when Cruella came in, it was like, I, I don't know who you are anymore. Yeah. So. The, the the writers made the, because of their chemistry, Um, I don't know if it's because or whatever. My, it, it was, their relationship was too ambiguous. I wish they would have cl- clearly defined it more as a friend or a brotherly or something, but it was just too ambiguous. And yeah, that would have made more sense. I agree. Well, I'm yeah. fine with ambiguous, actually, because... Most of the most of the time with movies, especially with a female and a male lead, is either they drill a super hard home like they're gonna fall in love with each other, or they do before the movie's over. Right. In this sense, if it's more ambiguous, that's almost a little more true to reality because you don't instantly just fall in love with somebody, even if you've been if you've known them for years. Sometimes it takes a while. Yeah. And now you're seeing her personality change where she's now in Cruella versus Estella. 
it would make sense that he'd be more ambiguous because it's like, do you start, do you continue to fall in love with the person she's becoming or do you just try to figure out how to wrestle between the fact that you fell in love with her before and now she's somebody different? I, I think that's something that's going to be left up for the second because uh, there was a thought that I had between, you know, first it's like Jasper is the brains of the situation. He brings Ella in and they start working together as, as a trio. And, you know, they, he gives her this nice gift to working in the department store. And Ella starts becoming a little bit more outgrowing them, so to speak. Um, but never once that I think Jasper ever felt that I couldn't, like, be with her or be on her level. So, you know, she needs to save him or he needs to save her. He, I think he saw her like, I will follow your lead. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, because there's going to be someone who is kind of the alpha in the relationship, but I think he's comfortable enough that he'll follow her lead. Right. Be part of that relationship without him worrying that. Because I, I never really saw him, like you said, the, the brains. I saw him more of the metronome of the group. You know, kind of like oh, of if, it go, if it goes too much this way, he brings it here. If it goes too much that way, he'll bring it here. Right. More mm-hmm. so than the brains that he proclaims. Gives her balance. Yeah. Yeah, well, Horace. I remember at one point, because I got that far, I got to the ball scene. So okay. I definitely know Forrest actually tells it to us straight out the gate. He's like, she's the boss. When yeah. Wink and Buddy are like looking back and forth. So we already know Jasper is not the boss at that point going forward. Well, at this point, I, you know, he, he kind of like gives it up because at this point he got arrested. He, he, he was put in a situation. They were fine to just go about their lives. But because she played the family card, it's mm-hmm. like now, okay, well, if this is the case, then we're going to follow you. Right. He's a, he's already lived his life the way he wants to, and he was content with what he had. But when things went the way they did and how it just didn't go well at all, he just feels like at this point, you know, let me just that's why he didn't want to deal with her until she played the family card. What is it you want to do? He became the follower instead of the leader because he was satisfied with what he had always. Can I move on a bit? So we have Forrest, who that's my guy. <laughs> I mean, he's adorable too. He's um, the one out of all of them. <laughs> uh, and they don't make him like dumb on purpose. You know, he he brings his own special talents and so forth. So he is still uh, a viable part of the team. But uh, the things that he does, you know, like him at the end dressing up as another Corella in drag, hysterical. For a, a character to do that, let alone a man to do that, I mean, uh, it's it takes a lot of uh, fortitude. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of there, but uh, and he loves wink a lot. He's like, I'm gonna kiss you in the mouth, and I don't care where you've been. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I love and that. They, okay, so they make them out to be vagrants. Okay, they're vagrants, right? But they're mm-hmm. they're and they and they try to stay true to the characters in the cartoons where. You know, he's supposed to be dincy and stuff. But these three characters are really super geniuses, like to a bit cartoony with their abilities, because all of a sudden they're DJs and they can play the guitar like masters. <laughs> then they come up with all these schemes and these mass schemes to, to, to um, sabotage the Baroness, mm. and go with the motorcycle and all these. You need you need a whole team of people to develop stages and do all the things they did. It. But it was just three people. I'm like, for vagrants, they're pretty smart here. <laughs> like, how did you guys do all these things? It's very, it, it got a bit cartoony for me with that. Those, 
with the schemes. So Lorraine writes, they are survivors and good and so good hearted and loyal. And they are, I mean, all the way through, even though, you know, there are times in which it seemed like it was going out of balance. They, they did eventually come back together. So, but, uh, yeah, I, I can't love enough of uh, good things about Horace. You know what? I was going to say something before you switched over, but you, sure. know, you know, remember how I mentioned how it's a little bit like, uh, um, it's like Devil Was Prada, but it also meets with Mission Impossible because they've played a lot of multiple characters. Fair enough. Good to analogy. Do the, to do their heists. I mean, like you said, the DJ, the guitarist, and the exterminator. The one became a woman. It's yeah. like they'll play any part to, to handle the angle, as Horace puts it. And then we get Anita Darling, which Anita didn't have a last name, if I remember in the animated movie, but Cruella kept calling her Anita Darling. So that's her name, Anita Darling, in this movie. Which, I, I again, I have no problem with this movie, how they kind of race-bent a lot of characters. It, it added more to me a, a better color palette for something that normally would have been like gentrification, like all white. Like, I felt more balanced to have color and, everywhere. And, and also gave the characters definition. So you never felt like they're just peppering in things just to make it look diverse. They actually gave them a good solid, mm-hmm. a good, uh, uh, some sort of nice storyline that made sense and a nice, you know, a nice something about them and you don't feel like, oh, they're just putting it in just, just to fulfill this diversity quota. Mm-hmm. And that's what I liked about her character. They didn't over. They didn't overpower us with her presence. It was nice, nicely peppered. Yeah, and we do get in the animated movie in the very beginning. Um, the, the I forgot the guy's name. Uh, he does mention, "Oh, Corella, your your school child friend, whatever, is here to visit you." So to see the kind of little backstory in the very beginning between uh, young uh, Anita and Corella. It's already been established by that movie. So to see them kind of grow up and then re- reform together, have that working relationship, it's great to see that also. Then we get the Dalmatians themselves, which, again, I think from the trailers, the initial trailers, when we see kind of young Cruella or Cruella and the dogs, they kind of feel something like she's bad news, right? That's the way I took it. But in this case, you can see the justification for Corella at the very beginning in which they pushed the mom over and they killed her, so to speak. I can, then I can see, oh, yeah, now I see why, if this is like the, the foundation of why she hates Dalmatians, I'm good with that. I really bought into that. But then over the course of the story later on, that changed altogether. So I'm like... Again, pulled a rug under me that I didn't see coming. And also, you see an element that um, their CGI, you know, computer graphic um, enhancement because of the dogs, you know, being like cruel and stuff like that, you know, that they're aggressive. That isn't the case. That was all like computer graphics. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go, ahead, Go ahead. Go ahead, Linda. Go ahead, Linda. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say that's the one thing that kind of took me out was the the animation of the Dalmatians. That kind of <laughs> messed it up for me. It was a little blah. 
Well, in fairness, I did that with the, all the other dogs too. So I'm like, there's no way they could have got all those performances. I mean, I know it was all computer generated, but I really like, along with this um, new Montgomery, how they started it in the beginning with the dog Dalmatians, and it kind of it made a lot of sense. But then it became watered down in the middle when they became friendly. I wanted her to go for it. You know the part. Sorry, spoiler alert. The part mm-hmm. when they see that they made her jacket out of the Dalmatian skins and afterwards they found out it was just, I wanted to just go for it, go for it. And I think they were playing it safe because, I mean, how can you like Corella? How can you still like this character if she actually did that? So leave it for the imagination for the future. But they still want her to be likable, you know. So I yeah. feel like they didn't go with that and there was a whole lot of political things that they may not want to show. But I wanted them to just go for it, just go for it. And let it be that. And then let this, because the story was ending anyways, but let it be that and let, or, or let that be around the ending so we could pick up from there. I wanted them to just not be, yeah. let her, her authenticity, that's who she is authentically, let that come out. Right. So the Baroness was worried that because her dogs were kidnapped and that she sees Corella in the gown that looks like a pelt of like a, Dal- a Dalmatian skin or, might have been one from her dogs who knows but then like she gets kind of like kind of concerned that she did this as revenge and of course that didn't happen but it is hinted at i mean and i think again we'll hold that conversation uh in just a little bit but i think at, at this day and age you really can't do the things that you were able to do back then like with Corella wanting to have 15 puppies that she's going to buy outright just so she can make her pelts out of them. I think that the times have changed to the point where... I and, and that's what I got from it, but I still think they could have went for it because Emma was that good. I don't mm-hmm. think the audience would have lost her. The writers are capable, they were capable of putting that in in a, you know, in a very manipulative way, as mm-hmm. they hinted. And that's why I felt like this storyline was just okay for me because I felt like the storyline was lazy. You know, you, that twist that they had was lazy. It reminded me, Luke, I am your father. Kind of well, see that coming. And it I, it and would he, have that moment, sorry, yeah. Linda. Sorry, Linda. But <laughs> right away, I do. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't hear that last part. I, I did a little bit of a spoiler. No, I want you to spoil I am not one of those people who, oh, I didn't finish the book. You can't tell. No, spoil it. Because knowing yeah. the ending doesn't mean I get to see how it happened. I still yeah. will watch it for the details. So go ahead. But I I want that. I want that fierceness to come out. Like, yeah, you get a hint of it, but um I think they could have Disney could have still did it. And still, you know, it's all about discretion. And they did hint it to it, but go give it all, give it all up in or whatever. Yeah, you you do understand PETA is very powerful. PETA is extremely they have their own lobbying force. Mm-hmm. But wow. Disney's about the safe bet. They're, they're yeah. even though they're trying to they're trying to go outside their box a little bit, but they're not going to push it. Yeah, and so I get much. that. I get that. I get that. Uh, I understand that. Yeah, because um, if I'm, I was doing a little research, they were created two years before the first 101 Dalmatians, and then PETA in 1980 was formed. So something like that. They really became a force that, you know, changed the industry, too, because they couldn't have, you know, animals being used, you know, even for filming, being harmed in any way. So if you ever see that in the very last bit of 
uh, any title sequence, no animals or harm in the making of this movie. Why you have to put that there? Because they did, you know. They would and, do horrible things, unfortunately, just to get a shot, you know. And it's interesting how times change because in the 60s, if I understand correctly, the fashion was they were doing animal pl- prints, but it was cheetahs. Mm-hmm. Cheetahs was like the big fashion. Now, right. if they did 101 cheetahs, people wouldn't have cared. But they made it domestic. Oh, a dog? No yeah. way. So that's I feel like that's where the connection was. But now you can't even do that. So it's right. funny to see how society has changed. Because I know PETA be- became a big thing in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this is where we are now. Yeah. It's like I agree. And at the same time, I kind of don't agree. <laughs> because for the, I think what messed the most just because the story was so long. And then, of course, it was like I said, it was a trauma response. So they try to rationalize that she realized that Dalmatians were a tool and not the actual enemy which is why the, she, the focus went back to the Baroness as actually being the perpetrator. So I right. can kind of see why, how you're saying that she tricked everybody by thinking she used the Dalmatian skins. It makes more sense for this movie because if you show her loving Buddy and Wink and actually caring about people, it wouldn't make sense for this version of Cruella to go and then kill the Dalmatians for something they really didn't have control over. Right, out of spite. I love Cruella and I love Madame Medusa from um, 100 what, Rescuers or whatever. Yeah. All right, so we have our opening moments where we got what we think is Ella's mother asking someone for money uh, to help them out when they're going to London, which, again, is a, it's a good switch because you're really led to believe that, you know, this is Ella's mother, and then to see her mom getting killed by the Dalmatians it's heartbreaking. I mean, she doesn't know anyone. That sets her off on this whole journey to find um, oh, no, her way no. to London. And then Jasper and Horace came into her life, so to speak. But that whole thing about the necklace also that she lost because her mom gave her that over you know, her before she left. like, take care of this. And, of course, she loses the very thing, the family heirloom that uh, comes back to her thanks to... Uh, I forgot his name, but it's Mark Strong, the one on the right top Sean, left. Sean. Thank you. Um, I was able to retrieve it. She actually thought she killed her mother. She thought she was the reason. And she had that pain that because of her, mm-hmm. that had happened. She blamed herself for that. Right. Um, for all those years. So it right. was tough. And that was when Ella noticed when she was working for the Baroness that she was wearing the necklace. And then uh, she realized that it's her that was being asked from her then mother, which again, that switch, that moment changed from, oh, I didn't cause the death. You're the one that caused the death. And now she's seeking revenge on her at all costs, so to speak. There was there was one thing I didn't understand about the film. Maybe someone has an interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. Um, why did the Baroness always take nine minute naps with the ch- with the necklace on? Because you know she has to go through a whole thing of putting it in the safe. Yeah, <laughs> not even a ten minute nap is nine minutes. So I didn't understand what was the symbolism of that. I don't, or maybe it was just cigar, just a cigar. Maybe that was just it. But what was so? Why was she so attached to that necklace? Um. I have no idea. Only because, because um, remember the the necklace has was the key to that box. I don't want to. Maybe she didn't know about the key, but I have no idea about nine minutes. 
very eccentric. Yeah, that was that was very strange how they kept emphasizing it, but they never gave any real reason why she wanted to have that necklace with her all the time. Yeah. Maybe, it's in, maybe it's in part two. Way. Probably. Well, it kind of told you what it is. Yeah. So. All right. We'll see what happens. Uh, then we get also our young version of uh, Ella. And then, of course, it's weird to start off with um, her doing the narration of the whole movie about her death. Right off the bat, I'm like, she didn't die in this movie. But in, in the course of it, I'm like, now it makes sense how Ella died, but Cruella lived. So. That's cool. Very Scorsese-ish. <laughs> Did you guys like the, the young Ella's performance? Um, I, heard kind of criticism. I loved her. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It was, she did a great job. Yeah, all the young actors did an amazing job. They and did. Amazing. Yeah, was like the glue that uh, brought them together at the very beginning. He taught basically Ella like the ropes. He saw that she was such an asset to them, and as Ella, she would make costumes for their heist. Um, she was, you know, elemental to all their things. And he saw that he had that, you know, she's going to make this better for us, you know, because Boris was like, no, we're not going to let you in. You're a girl. And, you know, and he's like, no, you know. So I, I think it just they played it out well. When you watch one in one Dalmatian, you don't understand the dynamics between them. But this kind of like a prequel mm-hmm. shows you why they have this bond, why they work so well together. Yeah, couldn't agree. Um, and then, of course, the the different versions of Cruella taking shape um, in her plans to upstaging the Baroness many times. That moment that you see her, like, the white dress kind of caught on fire and reveal Cruella underneath, everyone, like, including me, said... Oh my God, that's like a, like a very Joker kind of move, but that yeah. is an amazing appearance for the first time to see Cruella in May. In Mind you, it was in her blood red. <laughs> yeah. And she uh, nicked her. Yeah. That blood red was the color of the dress. Right. Which is a good callback because remember, she cut the dress and, like, and then she's like, can we get this color in this material? And then she played into that. So again, yeah. And then, then I'm like, so how does it you make a dress that kind of goes poof in a matter of moments like that? And there's Horace doing his magic trick with the paper, just catching it on fire, and poof, there it goes. I'm like, there you go. But again, the the, the amount of elaborate planning that they do for their schemes, you know, from <laughs> breaking into the first party to that dress being locked up in the vault and then not being able to access the vault. And when they do, it's covered in moths, and that's how all the dresses get ruined. So, so it is genius. It was, but wasn't those moths actual eggs? Like, yes, they were, they were eggs. Yeah. Yeah. So they she had the whole dress like that. And I'm like, and- how does she afford that? Because that was exotic moss. Did you see the packaging? It was a yeah. big wooden thing. It looked like it was thousands of dollars. So, first of all, they live in a abandoned building. 
No, but she was doing it under, what they have under the Baroness. Oh, under the Baroness. Because yes. I'm like, they live in an abandoned building with electricity. Half of it has walls, half of it doesn't. Yeah. How did you... <laughs> and the way she pre-planned it, yeah. caught doing the actual model of the dress. She pre-planned mm-hmm. it to prior to it even laying out. Yeah. She, I, you know, she was taking chances, I guess, that they would catch her doing these models, and she just knew the Baroness. Yeah. She so, knew what her next action would be. Yeah. And, you know, when you we hear her, you know, towards the end, it's like, do you have any ideas what to do next? I have some a couple of ideas. And you know, if, they, if she's able to plan this out, imagine what's going to happen in the future, considering um, now she has access to money and a house that is going to be an amazing thing for her. Uh, so, still, oh, sorry, almost 5.30, but we'll kind of go through this a bit. Uh, post-credit scenes, the, the former lawyer for the Baroness uh, wants to become, I guess, a songwriter. So we get the, the classic moments that we see from the animated movie and even staged the background too much to replicate what was playing in, uh, in the movie. Which, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go with it. I wasn't seeing that come out of anywhere. The other moments, too. We got to talk about Artie. Artie is fantastic. This is supposed to be the first kind of representation of the character. Um, and again, I, I love for what they were able to do with this character without having to do much for him. You just accept him for what he is and what he can do, and I'm like, there's not an issue about his sexuality. But, you know, you pair him up with like David Bowie, you see kind of like the blurred line between what what's masculine and feminine and just... And it made sense because that's what that's what David Bowie was doing with Ziggy Stardust in the sixties, seventies, right. and it blends in perfectly with you know trans uh, blurring the lines of gender. Now, even though the eighties was about androgyny, nowadays it's just full out gender bending and mm-hmm. everything that um, David Bowie had and the New York City Dolls had kind of like tr- uh, like trailblazers and address these things and and it was it was perfect just to add him into that that era was perfect for you know what addresses today so i thought i thought that was cool i really loved his character and the ode to ziggy stardust yeah so definitely hopefully we'll get more um from art next time and of course we get the last uh, moments where we have hell hall and that's the new era yes so another moment is that we do get the Dalmatians that she kept from the Baroness, which they had puppies. We get Pongo and Perdita. Is it the second? Yeah, that's their names. Thank you. Um, so yeah, we'll see how that plays out. Eventually, I guess those two will meet. I never it's- thought about that. I did, I did, I completely missed that. That would be cool. And they'll, they'll meet at Regent's Park, like they started off in the animated movie. Which is what Ella went to uh, in the very beginning. So I mean, so I'm getting a feeling like they're probably going to do a, a another remake of uh, 101 Dalmatians, but for the modern era. It seems like that's what it could be leading to. It, it, it looks like they could, but I 
don't know how it will play other than the Baroness is going to be the heavy half. She has to be the heavy because she's going to be in jail. So she's going to want revenge. Dead. (laughs) Yeah, to be nice. To be nice. Yeah. And Corilla has to come out full blast. This is going to. This is what scares me. <laughs> I already, I made sure not to go into this movie with expectations. Mm. Like be pleasantly surprised by anything that hopefully swayed my mind that this movie actually wasn't too bad. But after them doing the references to animated movie and the fact that y'all just said she pretended to kill the Dalmatians and she didn't, it's like the whole point of the animated movie was to show Cruella being cruel and hating animals and wanting to kill them. So now yeah. she can't kill the Dalmatians if she just gave them, let them have children and gave them away to her friend and uh, uh, Soshi, who's going to get married in the future. Right. So the Baroness is probably not going to have to do like Glenn Close. Um, Cruella, I think, did it where she went to jail. She got rehabbed, came yeah. out, and then reverted. Mm. Reverted, sure. We'll see how that came out. Uh, so again, lots of nods to the animated 101 Dalmatians, which is fantastic to see. And again, Annie, as you pointed out, this moment, I love this moment tremendously. The way she just kind of drove like that, kind of reckless. She's never driven a car before, but it was perfectly mimicked. So I love that. Tremendously love that. Yeah, but um, truthfully, I feel like these two versions of Cruella DeVille is still PG-13 compared to the original Cruella in Disney. And that's saying a lot because um, the Cruella in Disney, the animated version, she's not vulgar. She's not showing up. You know, they uh, they will manage to make her evil with just, I don't know, with the artistry of how they wrote it, mm-hmm. you know. So that's why I feel like this new Cruella DeVille, they can go there. They can go there. And I just I just want to see them let go. Yeah. Um, one of the lines, this line kind of stuck out for me. Because both the animated and the live action version said it within the first 10, 15 minutes. I live for her. I worship her. After all, is there a woman in all this wretched world who doesn't? So those two say it. Uh, the Emma Stone character in the Nicarella never says that line. Which it's definitely a departure from the fur being an aspect. So they lean into the fashion side, which I think still works in that sense. Because if you see the live action version, Cruella is like having into fashion, which is weird because when you see that movie again, well, for the first time, I'm not sure, she is having um, Anita work with her as an artist creating these new fashions. So it was weird to see that the Baroness and Corella in this movie had the same kind of relationship, but then the Glenn Close one looks kind of similar, but reverse, because then she becomes like her mom, kind of like that kind of, uh, that air about her, like she means business, don't mess with her, that kind of thing. So, but I still didn't like it as much as the regular animated movie. Before we go, tons of stuff in our library collection. So we got to promote that too. Like, that's amazing. It's a juvenile book. Mm-hmm. So, so interesting. If uh, you haven't had a chance to look at it, um, you know, place a hold on it. It's really great. Full color, it has a lot of pictures. It's fun. 
And the movie, a place to hold on the movie. It's available um, through the library system. We have it already? Or just one after we get it? Well, it's on the catalog. So. Okay. Whenever that happens. <laughs> All right. Um, who's next? So, uh, as Patrick mentioned, you know, we're going down this road of who is next. Well, this is what's next. We're getting a Gaston and uh, I forgot this guy's name <laughs> from Beauty and the Beast. Luke Evans. Luke Evans was playing Gaston, but then uh, Josh Gad. Josh Gad. I forgot his character. I'm blanking. In any case, it's a prequel to Beauty and the Beast. It's going to be also a Disney Plus series, I believe, and a musical. So I think it's scheduled for eight episodes. Um, That's all I know as far as those details. It's Le Faux, which translates to The Fool in French. Fair enough. I wanted to kind of get your take on these guys. If you're going Ursula. To- I'm sorry, Ursula. <laughs> but they have to go for it. Well, there is going to be a new uh, Little Mermaid movie that oh, Lindman was doing. I'm definitely going to be good for that. I'm kind of hinting for Hades, in my opinion, and Yzma. I love Yzma. There's no replacing Eartha Kit, but... Who knows if they could ever do something? I really don't think they can touch Cloud for Froyo or Stromboli. Well, because I think it might be a little too politically charged if they try to do Cloud, do you think? Mm. I, uh, think okay. they, I think they will be afraid to touch him since they were, they're trying to, you know. Yeah, I mean, Claude was blaming everything on women and all that jazz for his uh, his yeah. feelings. Is that the uh, Notre Dame one? Yes. Okay, because I haven't seen those movies in such a long time. I'm and, barely... and, and Stromboli and the Coachman, um, Pinocchio always creeped me out. Mm. <laughs> that movie is creepy. So there's no way <laughs> I'm watching it. Okay. So, um, yeah, Ursula. Ursula. Yeah, I, I will go with that. I can see that. The thing is, they do Ursula. She's singing? That's my real question. Because if she's not going to sing, I'm going to have a problem. No, I, I think the new one, they are going to do the singing. So we're not and, doing the Mulan version where there is no singing. And, you know, the, the voice actors from those classic films cannot be replicated. Mm-hmm. They have such strong acting voices. Like the, even like when Luke Evans played um, Gaston, he's a dear, uh, uh, Luke Evans is theatrically trained. He's a wonderful actor, but his voice did it. He has a beautiful talk, speaking, the Welsh speaking voice, but he couldn't carry that baritone. Mm. He the, and, and all these other actors that are remaking these films, they, they're great actors, but they don't, they're not great voice actors. When you listen to these classic, belt, um, you know, a Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, you can close your eyes and you you, trans, you know transcend with their voices and you feel it and you you feel the movement. Not so much so with these, I don't know if, if anyone feels the same. So even if they did do a Ursula, which they've replicated certain projects with famous actors and comedians, it doesn't feel the same. Kind of like a Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. It was great that Will Smith did it and he did his own version. But you're like, 
It's, it, there's, there's just, I don't know. I actually like Will's oh, version. <laughs> yeah. But they can do the, if they can train the actors to be better at lip syncing than the last few, I have no problem with them doing the acting voice-wise and having a singer. Because some of the Disney projects actually too, it wasn't always the people who were speaking who did the songs right. either. But it wasn't just the singing for me. There was a personality. There was a, a something about when they when they spoke. Their speaking was literally like acting. I don't know how to explain it. Is anybody in art? Well, they are more trained actors. Yeah. A few of them, minus yeah. the child actors, were doing, like I said, you were either in theater or they've been acting for years. And then some of the live actions, since they're giving us younger kids to match against the ages of the characters, they don't have the same skill set that the older but, actors brought to the voices. But like, but like I mentioned, some do. Like, for example, like I mentioned, Luke Evans. Luke Evans started his career in theater. That is his bread and butter. That was his heart before he went to film. And he's still doing theater. And he has a the- the- theatrically trained voice. It's just, uh, it's there's some there's an oomph that those older... But he's an exception, not the rule. That's yeah. the thing. Because look at, um, what's her name? That did Belle recently. Uh, Emma Wat- Watson? That's Watson, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. She's really only known for Harry Potter. And I didn't feel she really did well as Belle because I don't feel she had... Harry Potter wasn't the best place to learn your skill set anyways, for mm-hmm. one. I know she did a few movies other than that, but eh. Yeah, my only thing with that is that, look, Disney has the whole thing of redoing all their animated movies into live-action movies. Unless you're doing something different, why am I watching the exact same thing that the animated movie did better? So at least when they're doing the villain stories, it's a little bit more original. Like, I have no problems now with Melissa Finn. I love Cruella. I love to see what they're going to do more in the future along that way. I don't want to see a shot for shot of something they already did in the animated movie. That's boring. But that's why I feel like Disney lost its way. It's not about innovation, truly, it's about the money bags. Because it's more of mm-hmm. well, if it's not broke, don't fix it. What, what new are they creating now? Right, but it's more. They want to reinvent. The, they're not going to reinvent the wheel because they know that these films will bring in the money. Let's bring bring some new characters. You know, bring some new new stories. There's tons of Grimm's uh, Grimm's folk tales, mm-hmm. um, yeah. African American folk tales, Aesop, uh, American folk tales, um, German folk. You know, try something new, and that's where I feel like Pixar. They're allowing Pixar to do this, like these side projects and stuff be the safe part for them while they focus on the big money banks. I don't know. Kind of like what Marvel's doing. They're not really trying to reinvent the wheel. They just want to expand on what they have. But actually, Marvel, I, I don't think I could put in the same universe, but they have so much resources, so much characters that they can be doing their characters on forever and ever. So I, I don't know. But that's the thing, though. Disney is has never really been about taking chances. So... The argument of they need to break the mold. They tried Treasure Planet and they actually bombed Treasure Planet themselves. They didn't let it become successful. And that's almost a cult classic mm. for a lot of people. I have Whoa. to disagree. I have to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's what made Disney Disney in the beginning. That's when Walt was alive. No one was doing what they did. They got mm. a lot of criticism, a lot of backlash because they were pushing against the grain at the time. And they were 
pushing social norms at the time. A lot of things didn't translate well, you know, but when he was around and certain, like the, the writer uh, for, for um, uh, Aladdin, he passed away. And when he passed away, I think they didn't really have anyone to fill his shoes when it came to, because when you really read the lyrics for Be Our Guest and Aladdin, those words are very, um, it's like you're reading a literature. Mm-hmm. Sort of saguar fair. Who says saguar fair? You know, kind of words like, and you know, why should I worry? Like, where, where do you come up with these words? So I feel like the, the real trailblazers, when they passed, they haven't really replaced or tried to, you know, with the exception of certain projects like Pixar, right. you know, but um, but some of them left for that reason. That's how Pixar and some of the other companies got made in DreamWorks and stuff, which is why Shrek was such a big thing because they were making fun of Disney. Right. A few of the writers left and became those groups because Disney wouldn't let them break the mold. They already found the formula after the Renaissance and they weren't letting go at that point. I'm oh, sorry, is, is, is Pixar with Disney? Let it's still with Disney. It well, is. I just want to, I just want to, I didn't want to, I, I got a little, confused. yeah. Okay. I just wanted to say this. Um, for one, for the sake of Pixar, that was, that was more uh, Steve Jobs. Um, yes. That was his thing. He actually took that, that was originally Pixar, was from George Lucas. That was, that was Disney's and George Lucas's animation um, studio. And what Steve Jobs does that he just bought, he just he finds something that's innovative, he'll take it and then he'll rebrand it and then he knows how to handle it. That's what he's always done. That's how Apple's created. That's another long story. And but these... when it comes to Disney has tried, but the problem is that Disney is their, their success is what also they're undoing because they have created a brand where it's so kid-centric and family-centric that when they try to break the mold now, especially the last a good example, um, Carter of Mars, I think it was, they try to do that. And it it's not that it failed as a movie. It failed because it was a Disney product. See, if they sold it under MGM or in any other their other brands, it probably would have done well. But because, and I, I was reading articles about it, because I saw the movie, and I thought it was a great movie. Because you had Disney attached to it, it was hard for people to understand the balance, and that's what t- it got criticized for being a Disney movie. It felt like it it didn't have value even before it came out. Right. So Disney's mold, their their name and their brand is so ingrained that it's hard for them to try to break out under the title of Disney. So it's why, if you notice, all they're doing is just taking their old their old. Um, Properties, and, uh, and, yeah, properties, and they just keep rehashing it, and they just bring right. in the mediums if it's CGI or if it's live action, yeah. because that's and it, but yet it works because they're still making money. Right. So by buying all other studios and stuff like that, and let them do that, I give Disney credit. They let the other studios do what right. they are all to have something. Yeah. So, and it's, it's like that. For the brand. It's like that snake that eats his tail. At some point, people are going to get really bored of watching Disney and other side projects like Pixar probably will over, overshadow them because they're the only ones really doing innovation. Not just Pixar, but I'm sure there's other independent films, uh, sure. productions that are coming up and they're just going to swallow it. But Disney's not upset about that. Disney is like, either which way, they Disney owns them. So they're going to make a profit for the garden. Basically. So that's why Disney can stick to what they do, and then they can let the others do their stuff instead of just trying to out 
what you don't want to you know um, <laughs> defeat your own self you do right. what you get at and all right, guys, we're going to have to end it. Sorry, Monty's trying to end it. <laughs> that, and again, I don't have a problem with going long. I love it. But unfortunately, we're all going to have to go somewhere. <laughs> Thank you, Jennifer, again for the presentation. You did a great job. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Right. Bye-bye. Take care, Jennifer. Take care. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you, guys, again. Take care. Dr. Geek here with another reminder that the ESO Network is pro-science and pro-vaccine. We urge you to be a superhero and protect yourself, your family, and your fellow geeks around the world. Don't be fooled by the forces of evil and their anti-science misinformation campaign. Consult the latest CDC guidelines, your doctor, and get the COVID vaccine today. Time to grab your pillow and join the Geek Father in Little Bit for discussions on current, nostalgic, and speculative happenings in pop culture. Nerd news, fandom histories, deep dive discussions, reviews, and more. It's like listening to your closest friends have a nerdy conversation. So sit back, relax, and let the Blurred Nerds podcast embrace you with their warm, goofy goodness. It's nerd goals for your ear holes, right here on the ESO Network. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.